Greetings, beloved listeners. This is Volts for August 9th, 2023. What's the deal with interconnection cues? I'm your host, David Roberts. By now, you've probably heard that tons of new renewable energy projects are stuck in the interconnection queues, unable to connect to the grid and produce electricity until grid operators get around to approving them, which can take up to five years in some areas. And you might have heard that FERC recently implemented some reforms of the interconnection queue process in hopes of speeding it up. It all seems like a pretty big deal. But as I think about it, it occurs to me that I don't really know what an interconnection queue is or why they work the way they do. So I'm going to talk to an expert, Chaz Teplin, who works on carbon-free grids with RMI, to get the lowdown. We're going to talk through the basics of interconnection queues, why they're so slow, what RTOs and FERC are doing to reform them, and what remains to be done namely some friggin' regional transmission planning. With no further ado, Chaz Teplin, welcome to Volts. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me on, David. You know, as I said in my intro, it seems like the clean energy community at this point has heard the term interconnection queue <laughs> enough times that they all know it enough to say it, right? We know on some level that interconnection queues are slowing things down and they're backed up and that's why we're not building renewable energy as fast as we should be. But I suspect that quite a few of my listeners are roughly where I am, which is that's basically where my knowledge <laughs> runs dry. <laughs> I can say the words. So I'm excited to talk to you about what the heck they are, why they exist, et cetera, how to, how to solve them, et cetera. So maybe let's just start with why is it that all of a sudden everybody's talking about interconnection queues? Why has this come to the top of the, of the pile recently? Yeah, everybody's talking about interconnection queues and there's been a recent order from FERC, why all the hullabaloo, right? <laughs> so I think it's a good news, bad news story. The good news is that there's currently two terawatts of generators asking to connect to the US grid. And almost all of that two terawatts is clean energy, wind, solar, and storage. So for those of us that have been in the business for a while, this is unbelievably great news. That means there's so many projects out there of clean energy mostly, there's some gas, but clean energy mostly that believe it's economic to connect to the grid, and they're willing to pay a, a fee in order to ask to connect. And how much, how much is that relative to what's currently on the grid? Yeah, it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison, but two terawatts asking to connect, 1.25 terawatts approximately on the US grid today. Right. So there's more waiting to get on than exists currently on the grid. Now, we know I'm sure you're going to say, we're going to say probably 50 times during this pod, just because something's in the queue doesn't mean it will necessarily get built. So all it's not like all of that two terawatts is real or inevitable, but still the fact that more is waiting to get on the grid than currently exists on the grid is quite striking. That's right. And, and every year more is asking to connect, right? So yeah, absolutely. It's not going to all get built, but... I think it's a fairly clear uh, demand signal that 
generators and developers are giving. They want to connect to the grid. They believe they can make money doing so. So it's great news. And yet they are stuck there. <laughs> They're stuck there, yeah. So, so that's the good news. The bad news is twofold. First, say I'm a, a wind or solar generate, you know, developer wanting to connect to the grid. It's going to take me years after I ask before I even find out if I'm allowed right. to connect. Three, sometimes even five or more years. It depends on the grid and, and some of the details. But it takes years and that adds cost and obviously time to your, your project that you don't want. And that's unfortunate. And second, it's bad because a lot of times what the grid operator comes back with is a really large bill that could easily make it so that your project is uncompetitive mm. and no longer makes sense. And so you see high dropout rates. So yeah, the, the queue is huge. That's good. It shows that there's demand, but it's bad because projects take too long to get through the queue and even find out what the cost is going to be to connect. And often those costs are high. You know, this might even be too obvious to say, but I think it's worth emphasizing at the outset that it's just a little crazy. Anyone who's an investor or who's tried to, you know, manage a project or build a project, just imagine like if you had to say to your investors, not only like this is a worthy project now, but this will be worthy in three years or it will be worthy in five years. How do you, how do you know? Like it's just an insane addition of uncertainty and risk to every single solitary project. Right. And you don't know how much it's going to cost. It's like, you know, my co the cost of my project is a dollar a watt plus or minus 50 cents. Like that's not really reasonable because yes. you don't know what the connection cost is going to be. I know. It's just an insane business environment. Like we're not sure of what your costs are, not sure how long it's going to take. And then you're trying to talk investors into sort of sticking with you through this. One thing I want to add on that is it, it causes problems for developers, for investors, but it also causes problems from the grid. And the problems sort of are in this reinforcing loop. Right. Because developers don't know where to connect, where to ask to connect or how long it's going to be. They tend to like put in a lot of speculative projects. Right. Because they don't, they are hoping that one of them is a good deal. Right. Sort of play, play in the table, right? That's right. They're playing the table. And unfortunately, that doing that might be good for them. But it puts a huge load on the grid operator to try and process all this and makes it bad for everybody because then it makes the process take even longer. Right. So, you know, it's an example of the rules and sending bad behavior and then the bad behavior cycling. Right. So let's back up then and talk about what an interconnection queue is exactly and why they exist. Like, why do utilities need every project to stand in a single file line and be approved one by one? Why, 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 why? So there's a couple, there's some very good reasons and then some arguable reasons for having an interconnection queue. The clear and very good reason, and we're all glad that they exist, is because the grid operator does need to ensure that a new generator on the system won't cause some cascading set of failures that could bring down a significant fraction of the grid. Like that's not likely, but it's possible. The way that that would work is you would like study the grid under some set of scenarios. And then you have the key thing is then you also ask, so what if something else on the grid fails? That would cause transmission or cause power to flow along the transmission lines in different ways. Mm. Uh, and if you, for example, overloaded a line or a substation, that would be bad. And so you might need to upgrade that substation to make sure that when this new generator comes online, you don't cause a problem. So you're you're just ensuring for each individual project that that individual project will not be sort of the straw that broke some camel's back. That's right. And that's 
it's important to understand though, that's like one piece and every grid operator studies that to make sure that there's not going to be a problem. But there's a second piece, which is making sure that the power from that generator is usually going to be deliverable to load, meaning you don't have to turn it off to keep things in safe conditions. And that's a little bit different. And that's related to how grid operators plan for resource adequacy, making sure that there's always enough generation to meet load. And different grid operators do that in different ways. But it really, a lot of the different opinions about how we should do this come down to how much we should ensure that different projects are deliverable to the system. And it's related to how grid operators, again, think about making sure that there's always enough generation online at a given time. Right. So that seems like a reasonable reason to have a queue. Is that the main one? The one that's universal, right, is the making sure there isn't cascading failures issue. The one that is more controversial is the connection to resource adequacy, Mm -hmm. because different grids do that in different ways. And then the other related issue is that in a lot of grids today, this is the primary way we invest in the transmission system, is we ask the next generator to pay for upgrades to the transmission system. (laughs) Yes, this is the part I always stumble over, the craziest thing to me. So I want to just spend a second on it. The analogy I always hear is like a line of cars waiting to get on the freeway. The freeway can only fit so many cars. So when the freeway reaches capacity, we ask the next car in line to build a new lane of the freeway, basically. So like... You know, so like the next generator in line when capacity is reached is on the hook for paying for new transmission, which is as crazy as it sounds. Yes. Yeah, it's pretty much like that. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, it's a competition to be the car after the person had to pay because then you sort of get to nominally free ride. Exactly. Or the car before or just like not be that car. Like you don't want to be like that one car who, you know, it's like a lottery almost. Yeah. And, and it's important to recognize, though, that like it's crazy in the current system to look at it that way. But when these roles were put in place, it wasn't quite as crazy as it seemed. Mm. Right. In a world where that we're in today, where we're seeing lots of new generation that is sort of geographically constrained. You want to put low cost you know, wind farms where it's windy. You want to put solar farms where it's sunny and the cost to build is low. Those are sort of geographically constrained. You know, in previous eras where load was flat and we were mostly building gas plants, you can kind of build a gas plant wherever it's convenient for the grid. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, to continue with the analogy, like you you can get to your destination through lots of different highways. So you're encouraged to use an empty one. But that's no longer the world we're in now. And because, and this is the the key thing, because we haven't been doing significant investments in transmission, we're in this place where all of the key highways are clogged Hmm. um, or close to being clogged. And lots of cars are are waiting in line to get on that highway. So is it the case that if you are the project that just draws the short straw and happens to be in line or at the head of the line when new transmission is needed, two questions. One, how much additional cost is that to you? Like, is it, does it, double your cost? Like how much does it, is it for a developer to pay for new transmission? Is that like, is that, uh, you know, it's sort of dispositive amount of additional money. And number two, if you are the unlucky person in that spot or the unlucky project in that spot, and you hear back from the RTO that 
yes, you can connect if you build a new transmission line. Can you then just say, well, never mind, right? And then drop out. And then the next project behind you is the unlucky project. And then why wouldn't that project also just drop out? So like who, who accepts these additional costs? It seems like you don't have to, like everybody would be trying to avoid it. That's right. Everybody's trying to avoid it. Absolutely. You aren't required to build your project when you enter the queue. You might lose your deposit. But so the cost can be very large. You know, the queues that make it all the way through, often they are ones with manageable costs. And so so they do get built or they run into the next set of challenges, things like supply chains currently or permitting. But those projects that do make it through the queue often are the ones that chose a good place on the grid, if you will. Like I mentioned earlier, it's sort of a cascading problem. If a project drops out, that also impacts all of the projects around you, right? So now somebody else becomes the second car, you know, the second car becomes the first car. And so then the RTO needs to go and restudy and say, oh, we thought that generator A was going to be online, but they dropped out. So now we have to restudy the whole thing. Uh, And those studies are what take years? You know, the studies themselves are pretty complicated because, you know, first you have to look at every possible failure on the grid that could happen. And then you have to look at, well, okay, if that fails and something else fails, what happens? That's part of the interconnection queue study. And they are processor and human intensive. And so, yes, they actually take a long time to do the studies. They're expensive in terms of having the staff uh, and even the the computational capabilities to run. Uh, And so they take a long time. So we can get a situation here It's trying to paint a picture where all these projects are in line. A project comes to the head of the line. The RTO takes years to study, comes back and tells the project, our study concluded that we don't currently have capacity to accommodate you. So you're going to have to build a new transmission line if you want to connect to the grid. And that project says, oh, that's going to double my costs. No, thank you. I'm dropping out. And then the years-long study process starts over again, that's like two years a pop, three years a pop. Yeah. With nothing happening and nothing getting interconnected. Like that just seems like an insanely slow way to do things. Yes. And so there's been lots of ideas about how to fix some of these process-oriented challenges. And some RTOs are already doing that and FERC has made some progress this week. We'll get to there, I'm sure. But yes, that is a fairly close approximation of the existing process. Is any transmission getting built this way? Like, it just seems like the the most inefficient possible way to build transmission, too. Like, are there projects that get stuck with this obligation to build new transmission who do it? And are we seeing transmission getting built through this? Yeah, I mean, most projects will have some interconnection cost, right? And and so they they do make some improvements to the transmission system. So some developers are able to make it work and they'll swallow the cost and that benefits everybody else on the system. Right. They pay for it. So yes, we are building a small amount of transmission in that way. Not very much. Right. But yes. And also it seems worth pointing out that in terms of transmission planning, building each increment of transmission based on what the next project in line requires also seems like the most myopic possible way to be building transmission. Like you're not planning for the future. You're just literally reacting. Yeah, that's right. On a project by project basis. Yeah. And like I said, it's not crazy in a world where you don't imagine the grid needs to change very much, but it'll never get us to where we need to go with the energy transition underway. And, you know, this has big implications, right? In terms of economics 
as ACOR has pointed out, in terms of like states meeting their clean energy goals, as NRDC study recently showed. And then even in terms of reliability, which PJM in the Mid-Atlantic has shown, they're worried about retiring fossil plants and these problems and the lack of ability to get projects online, you know, being out of sync and then having reliability issues, not having enough resource adequacy to meet demand. Right. So this process is not going to be fast enough for any of the things we want to do to to hit our carbon goals, state carbon goals, utility carbon goals, utility reliability, all these things require some speed and agility, which this is standing in the way of. So why is it like this? (laughs) How did it get this way? Yes. I mean, the current system was set up in the 2000s, you know, where, where natural gas was the primary generation being added and could be flexibly cited. And so in order to try and right, set up the system in the way that made sense, they FERC suggested that we have this participant funding paradigm where new generators pay for the, the transmission needs that they require. That's how sort of we got here. And there's a lot of status quo bias towards keeping that system. And there's not a lot of appetite among many for changing it dramatically. This I don't understand, though, because, I mean, I'm not a grid expert, but even just explaining it to me in this way it's very obvious to me that it's not working. (laughs) You know, it's obvious from the results that it's not working. It's obvious from any description of the process that it's clearly not working. It's not working for anybody, for anybody's goals. Why isn't there more appetite for large-scale change? Is it just the conservatism of of the industry? Yeah, uh, you're putting me in a tough spot here, David, but I think, <laughs> I think there is a lot of hesitancy to change, right? Cost allocation is often a problem with, you know, if, if we're not going to ask new generators to pay for the transmission, who are we going to ask to pay for it? Right. You know, and then there's disagreements between, you know, again, to go back to PJM, the grid I perhaps know the best, that between states that have clean energy goals that are excited to do this kind of transmission planning and states without that feel like they're being burdened with other states goals, I don't think that that's a good argument necessarily for not building transmission because just the economics and reliability benefits from the transmission alone are more than adequate to make a great case. To make a great case for ratepayer benefit, for citizen benefit, but the utilities in those states with no targets, their narrow financial interests may not always line up with, you know, like they make a lot of money through the grid being congested is one of the dark secrets there. Yes, of course, there are financial actors that have a a spot on the grid where power prices are higher than they would be otherwise. And if you happen to own the generator there, you're making more money. Right. And if you did the transmission and you had to compete with, like, that's just unavoidably true. We would hope that the stakeholder processes and the RTOs and whatnot would take the broader picture about what's best for the full system for the economics and everything. And, and, but it's hard to make those changes. And, you know, it's always hard to make a change from the status quo, especially if it was, there was long battles in the 2000s about getting to this era. So folks are always hesitant to make that effort to really look at, at what could be done differently. Yeah. So let me ask what might be a naive question, but what would happen if an RTO, a regional transmission organization that's responsible for the sort of wholesale electric market in a region, just threw open the door and let projects connect first come, first serve as they show up without this extended single file line process, would 
things come crashing down? Is that even a possibility? Well, I mean, that is basically, or has been at least the ERCOT model, which is in Texas, right? So to be clear though, they still do interconnection queue studies. They just don't worry about deliverability to the same extent. They still make sure that new projects won't cause dynamic instabilities in the grid that could cause cascading failures. Everybody does that. Right. What happens there is the you put the, on the developer the risk that they just will have to be curtailed much more often. Right, because of grid congestion. Yeah, that's right. It's also tightly related to the different ways that, in this case, ERCOT handles resource adequacy. In ERCOT, there is no effort to make sure that there's always enough power to meet demand. They trust that high energy prices will incent developers to build projects. Right. For the nerds, this is an energy-only wholesale market. They do not have a capacity market alongside it. That's right. And so because you know, in PJM, in order to qualify for the capacity market, PJM, quite reasonably, wants to make sure that you can actually deliver power to load. Right. Otherwise, like, you're not really helping much with resource adequacy, though there's some details there. In ERCOT, there's no such concern. They just trust that developers will look for places on the grid where they think there might be high energy prices because there's barely enough generation to meet load and that that will incent development. And so they don't have to be as careful with that kind of analysis. And so it speeds up the system. They put more of the risk on developers that their projects will get curtailed. And so they're able to make their interconnection queue process go more quickly. And it works? Well, ERCOT's had some troubles lately. Their queues are much shorter and they're able to process applications much more quickly. Every grid has been having its challenges, you know, in ERCOT especially. I, I'm not sure I would blame this, you know, the recent outages there on this problem. The other thing that in the past ERCOT has done well that and is the solution everywhere, as we've hinted all along, is the CRES transmission planning effort made it much easier to connect a whole bunch of wind energy. What's the CRES? Yeah, this was an effort that the state and ERCOT took to recognize renewable energy zones and plan significant transmission investments that made it possible to connect all of the amazing wind in the Texas panhandle. Right. Proactively planning and building the transmission for when they show up rather than waiting for them to show up. Exactly. And then building the transmission in reaction. So that sort of takes that bit of risk off the developer's back, right? That's right. Or, or you do, you know, if we're in places where there's been proactive transmission planning, there's a surge in projects in, in those regions with the new transmission and the interconnection costs are much lower. Right. And what is CRES stand for? I can't let the... Uh, Ooh, now you're going to get me. It's, <laughs> it's uh, something for renewable energy zones. Uh, so Yeah. And we would love, and, and many, many folks are calling for the same thing, that we need to do a lot more of this kind of proactive transmission planning for reliability, for economics, for reducing costs to customers, and to help relieve the stress on the interconnection process. Yeah, I think this is a theme here, not only in this pod, but on all of Volts and indeed all of the clean energy world is it is mind-bogglingly crazy that we're not doing large-scale regional transmission planning when that is clearly necessary to shorten these queues, to improve reliability, to reduce costs, to meet our energy uh, emissions targets. Like, just name it. Like, you know, like if you look in these models... You know, like uh, Princeton has done these models of IRA's effect, the Inflation Reduction Act's effect, 
And how big the effect is depends almost entirely on how much transmission gets built. Like the modeling that shows big reductions from this depend on a ton of transmission getting built. And right now we just don't, we just aren't doing it. It's crazy. I know, I, I know I'm just repeating myself at this point, but it's so crazy. I feel like I need to just say it over and over again. And we can make the argument for that based on economics, you know, benefits to ratepayers and reliability. As you've said in, in other uh, cases, right, the emissions reductions are just bonus. <laughs> I think it's also important to like notice where progress is being made. For example, in, in PJM, again, you know, my favorite grid, like there is now the start of some regional planning. So there's going to be a huge opportunity there to look at, at what that looks like. Maybe let's take a minute to focus in on PJM because PJM is sort of like the poster child for this difficulty, right? They have the biggest queue, the slowest queue, the the most, like this is the problem is most acute there. So why, maybe tell us a little bit about PJM, like where it is and what it is and why it has this problem so badly. Yeah, so PJM's in the Mid-Atlantic, 13 or 14 states, District of Columbia. Uh, it's the nation's largest grid operator with a 150 gigawatt peak. They have 3,000 queued projects, even though they they stopped taking actually projects into the queue uh, for, for some time because they just couldn't process it. So you can't even go to PJM now and set up a new renewable energy project, basically? Like you can't even get in the queue at all? Yeah. They're, I mean, they've just restarted their process. I want to acknowledge like the staff at PJM and the stakeholders at PJM have a really hard job to manage this large collection of politically diverse states. Right. And, you know, they see their job as keeping the lights on and, and doing so economically, and they're balancing lots of competing things. So their job is hard for sure. But the, the queue process, they have not done any real regional transmission planning for some time. So that, you know, they've looked at where transmission projects are needed to relieve like immediate congestion on their system. And they do a good job of, of building those kinds of projects, but they haven't done any of these regional transmission projects for some time. Is their queue notably slower than other queues? Like, is their studies take longer or are they just in a particularly large and busy place? No, they're, objectively, they're, their queues have been taking longer to process, so typically five years. Yeesh. Yeah, compared to like nationally, about, about three years. So, I mean, again, the good news is that there's lots of projects in their queues. I sort of wonder why, though. Like, I, I start to wonder why, like, if you're the... 2,970th, you know, project in the queue, why bother? Like if it's taking five years per project, you're not going to come up for approval until like the year 4,000 or whatever. It's a good question. I mean, I, it's, it's, I think these project developers though, right, they, they have to take a long view. They know that in five years, if they still want to have work, they got to put projects in now. And so there's a lot of speculation about where good projects will be and, and where they'll be able to get generation cited. Uh, and so it's worth taking the risk. And, you know, we'll get to the FERC piece, but there's, there's relatively little cost to adding your project to the queue. And it right. potentially could be a really valuable position to do so, uh, really profitable to build a project there. So people do still have a lot of appetite to put projects on the queue, even with a long time horizon. And do they have uh, unique reliability problems in PJM that are either exacerbating or being exacerbated by this interconnection process? 
one thing that makes it easier in PJ, I might argue, is there's very little variable generation on the on their grid right now. They have very little wind and solar, less than five percent of generation in huh. PJM is from wind and solar, whereas it's much higher in many other parts of, of the country. It is true, PJM's done recent studies of their own where they are very concerned about in the out years about resource adequacy. Mm-hmm. They're looking at a coming electrification, they're looking at coal retirements. And they're, they're concerned that they can't get new generation online fast enough. The, the official take on it and, and others take on it, you know, places the blame at different places on the system and the solution in different places. What we'd like to see is transmission planning and reforms to the queue that makes it easier to get new generation online. We think that's the opportunity with the best economics and the most reliability and, of course, also the bonus emissions reductions. And so isn't it the case that outside of ERCOT, no RTO seems to be really like killing it (laughs) on this, but didn't MISO recently do some things to have some reforms that sort of sped things up somewhat, aren't they? I I thought they made uh, news recently with some reforms. There is progress around the country, not to the extent that we'd like to see MISO's process is probably seen as one of the the better ones. They've had a long stakeholder process and they've identified the first of four tranches of new transmission that they have approved at the RTO level, right? So MISO is approved. There's also good things going on in California. California has identified that they need a lot more transmission to bring more generation in from, from out of state. You know, and I mentioned PJM starting up a new process. And of course, FERC is looking at requiring with a new rule that regional transmission planning be more holistic. Isn't one of the things MISO are doing in this, uh, I feel like is one of the reforms, sort of the near-term easy reforms I see tossed around a lot, which is at least approving projects in batches instead of one at a time? Yeah. And this is perhaps the biggest deal in the FERC order as well. So most of the RTOs now are moving towards more of a batch process. So it's not it's not like the example, the metaphor you used earlier with the cars in line where the, the last car that gets tasked with the whole lane, instead they look at, looks like there's 12 cars coming online in this freeway entry. We're going to look at what it's going to cost to add all of them at once. And if it requires a new transmission, then the cost of the new transmission gets spread out over those 12 projects. That's right. They also ask more of the developers in each of these so-called clusters they want to do more to increase the the financial and the siting, you know, make sure that they actually have the land available to them, that they're serious projects. And so this first ready, first served approach where you look at clusters of projects and require the developers to show that they're likely to actually build the project is hoping to fix a lot of the issues that that we talked about. Not all of them. It's still going to be, there's still going to be a lot more to do, but this is something that now FERC is requiring that MISO and then PJM and their new process is requiring, I believe SPP does it as well in, in California. This batching? Yeah, that's right. It seems like if nothing else, that would impose a little sort of discipline on the queue. Like you wouldn't get in the queue so casually, you know, like you wouldn't get in the queue unless you're really ready to go. Right. And these clusters sort of progress together and it handles dropouts much more efficiently so that there's less re 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 studies still some, but, but like it's it'll still you know and the process should move a lot faster and more efficiently with these best practice cluster studies 
do we have empirical evidence that these reforms are going to speed things up or is it just hope at this point? Like have we, has it been implemented anywhere long enough for us to judge its success? I wish I had great data on that. I don't, I know that MISO for sure has been doing this now for a little while and I, you know, I'd welcome a listener to, <laughs> to comment somewhere on, on whether there's data there, but I think everyone agrees that this is best practice and we're seeing better results with the process moving along more efficiently. Right. So let's well, let's talk about FERC then. So FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, obviously this problem has been bouncing around for a while and people have been angsty about this and, and we desperately need reforms of this. Uh, you know, the chance to do it legislatively <laughs> came and went. So it's sort of all on FERC's back now. So what exactly did FERC take upon itself to do and what did it do? Yeah, so FERC order uh, 2023, named obviously after the year, was issued last week. Uh, it's a 1,500-page light read. Yikes! Yeah, so I have not. <laughs> I admit I have not read all of it, but can summarize, you know, what a lot of folks have been talking about. So perhaps most importantly, it moves to this first ready, first served approach and this cluster study approach, which includes some more requirements from developers to show their projects are serious. So this is the has force of law now, like RTOs have to have to do that. Uh, that's correct. The way it works is that an RTO, all the RTOs will have to say, okay, we see your order. We're required to do it in certain ways. This is how we're going to change our process. Right. And then FERC approves that. And a lot of the RTOs already have a FERC approved process. Likely a lot of them will have to, over the course of the next few months, revise there are already approved processes to comply with, with the new order or ask for an exception. There's going to be a lot of action there to like try and make sure that the RTOs are as aggressive as possible in how they comply with this new order. Yeah, I'm sort of wondering if we can just kind of a timeout here, but I'm just curious what the sort of disposition of the RTOs is toward this. Like, are they looking at this as like, oh, here come the feds imposing you know, onerous restrictions on us? Or are they on board? Do they want to do this? Are there any RTOs that are sort of like pushing back or recalcitrant on this type of reform? I mean, compliance is always a burden, right? But I think FERC, you know, FERC's stakeholder process and comment process is extremely extensive and the RTOs get a, a large voice in that process. So the order itself is quite long, but the comments they got on the draft order, the notice of proposed rulemaking was even longer. Mm -hmm. um, and so shout out to all the, the FERC staff that had to read all those orders <laughs> oh and God. try and make sense of it and, and come up with the final rule. So, you know, the RTOs, of course, are going to like some things and, and dislike others and, and have to work hard to comply. And I think that FERC did a good job of balancing the needs and... Yeah, I mean, of course, we probably would have asked them to go further in, in some ways, but a lot of what they've done is really good. So what else is it? There's the clustering, first ready, first served. Yeah, there's, um, they now need, in their studies of like, how can we solve the issues that we did identify? They now have to include um, what FERC called alternative transmission technologies, right? So things like uh, new ways of moving power on the grid um, and other tricks that we can play to get more out of the current system. Mm. Unfortunately, these like also they're called GATS grid enhancing technologies. So a lot of these technologies are really cost effective. Most studies show, but they're not always adopted. And so now 
we probably would have liked this ruling to be a little bit stronger. We think that the opportunities for these technologies is is really great, and the payback times are often measured in months, not not years. And so we'd like to be adopted more aggressively. They're now required to at least consider and evaluate the option there. That's it, though. They have to consider and think about grid-enhancing technologies. Yeah, we we haven't, I haven't especially, uh, gone through the detailed language in the order to know exactly how that's going to look. But I think a lot will come down to, you know, how the RTOs actually comply. Long-time listeners will remember I did a piece on grid-enhancing technologies a couple of years ago and, and a pod on it. And it's just, uh, you know, it's sort of like advanced digital stuff, as you say, to get more performance, more throughput out of existing lines. And it always struck me that if we have these technologies available and we know they're available and we know they work, then RTOs are like utilities refusal to use them violates the sort of core utility mandate for just and reasonable rates. Like you could lower rates by using these. So it seems like it ought to be more enforceable. It seems like something that you could like sue utilities over, not just like a helpful suggestion. Yeah. A lot of people have made the just and reasonable argument that these are cost-effective technologies and it's just crazy not to use them to the great extent that we can you know, there's always the balance that comes back on, are they really proven? We we have to be very conservative because we don't want to risk the grid. I I think the evidence is there that that's not a great argument. And so, you know, we have projects to really try and push getting more of these GETS technologies onto the grid to like reduce interconnection costs and just use our existing grid more efficiently while we build out the transmission. Yeah. And when we say more efficiently, like getting 30, 40, 50% more out of it, these are not small numbers that these technologies enable. Yeah, often, I mean, and they're fairly low cost and can be deployed a lot more quickly than, you know, building a new transmission line. Yes. So, yeah, they make, they make a lot of an intuitive sense and most of the studies support that. There's always some devils in the details. And so we're even doing some quantitative work there to try and show how much it could reduce costs and increase deliverability. Yeah, I need to revisit that. I need to revisit that subject on the pod. Okay, so Ferk's saying batch processing, you have to at least think about and consider <laughs> grid-enhancing technologies. Well, There's now some deadlines and penalties if the processing takes too long. So there is some, some now, some stated rules about, you know, we expect you to process interconnection applications in a certain amount of time. I don't think this is like, start to finish, like when you get in to when you get the final results of the study, it's more like how how these cluster studies should progress as they go through. So, uh, you know, we, we think that's good. The, the penalties, I don't believe, are extremely large by utility numbers, but they're still it's still meaningful that they're there. Um, and I think it should be a way to encourage transmission owners and, and RTOs to move quickly. As an aside, I think you know, this isn't in the FERC order, but just from a pure staffing perspective, it's really a challenge for the RTOs as well. Capacity, 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 our favorite subject here. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, you did a workforce pod and it was, I don't think it was too much focused on this kind of issue, but yeah, the need for transmission engineers is uh, far exceeding the supply. Um, So for all you engineering students out there, please go into transmission. (laughs) All right. So that seems like those three things together seem like 
reasonable incremental reforms. That's right. From FERC. So nothing bad. Is there more that FERC could have done? Like, I'm sort of curious about the kind of limits of its authority here. Like how, how, what would you like to see it do that it didn't do? Yeah. I mean, I think the regional transmission planning and ideally even interregional transmission planning, I'd be remiss if I didn't say like, please, we need to do everything we can to make that kind of transmission planning the default and the requirement. So that's number one. It's not a fast fix because it takes a while to build transmission. As you know. Yeah, I'm just curious whether FERC can do that because, you know, this was this was the whole debate over, you know, they tried to get it in the legislation and then it that deal fell apart and it fell out of the legislation. And then people are like, well, we'll just go to FERC. And so I'm, you know, I, I, I'm curious. I think a lot of people are curious whether FERC can do that to the extent legislation could have. Yeah, I mean, they're not going to be able to do, obviously, legislation is more flexible, right? Then right. FERC does have a, a notice of proposed rulemaking on regional transmission that has been a huge focus and hopefully will come out, you know, over the course of the next year and hopefully require this transmission planning. It's definitely within their jurisdiction to my understanding, though, though I'm not a lawyer to make that caveat. Yeah. I mean, it would, it would just make so much more sense to go plan your transmission grid and then for the RTO to go out and say, hey, we're going to build transmission here. It can accommodate X amount of new energy bid for this spot on the grid, right? So instead of like backing into the future, you're sort of proactively filling out your grid according to your vision. That's right. And that requires broad alignment, though, about everybody in the, in the, in the market trying to say, yeah, what, what is the future that we envision? Yeah. Um, we can't, it's not going to just be a question. So it's, it's a long and complicated stakeholder process that we're all excited to partake in. It'd be super nice, wasn't it, if we had federal, you know, if we didn't have this patchwork of states with radically different visions about what they wanted to and, and radically different targets. You know, it'd be nice if we were sort of like everybody's on the same page and striving for the same goal. It is politically a super sticky wicket to do inter-regional transmission planning with states that are so heterogeneous. You know, the, the clean part of it is, is challenging politically, but the reliability and the cost perspective isn't so bad. So there is, there is you know, the Hickenlooper bill that would have required more inter-regional transmission build, you know, does have bipartisan support. Mm. And we're hopeful that, that that will come back and there'll be a chance for these, you know, a requirement there on the legislative side. But in the near term, and, you know, as for what we can do to fix these problems, you know, the FERC order, perhaps order 2024, is really, really top of mind for everybody in this space. So FERC can do more and do you think wants to? I'm not going to guess what, what the current, you know, set of four commissioners are, are going to do. Right. We're still lacking one, aren't we? We're still lacking one. Yeah. So um, we currently, I believe, have four Commissioner Danley you know, his term, I believe, is up or coming up, um, but but is able to stay on for, I believe, till the end of the year. So, yeah, we, we may get be down to three shortly. So <laughs> it would be great to have, a, as they say, a fully staffed and operational for. <laughs> yes, I'm sure Joe Manchin will sign, find some way to screw that up and delay that appointment. I want to ask one final question, but first I want to ask one second to final question. <laughs> Because sure. um, I, I forgot to ask about this earlier, but this is something I've always been sort of curious about. Generation projects in the queue are one thing, but lots of projects these days will be combined generation and storage. And some projects, 
uh, now will be standalone storage. Are those also in the same queue? And if so, are they studied the same way? Because it just seems like the performance of a storage project on the grid is going to be fundamentally different than, and its effect on the grid, it's going to be fundamentally different than the performance and effect of a generator. Do they all go mushed in the queues together? Are they all evaluated in the same way? They are all in the same queues. Um, like they not aren't always necessarily evaluated in the same way. And there were some reforms also in the recent FERC order about the assumptions we make about inverter-based resources, which includes storage, about how they're going to operate. Mm. And the ability for developers to say uh, what technologies they're using to make sure that they, they go well. And I believe there's some ability to change how uh, you can add uh, storage, like make your, make your solar project a hybrid project. If that's not in the FERC order, a lot of the RTOs you know, are looking at or do allow you to make some of those changes. So you don't have to like go to the back of the line if you just add storage, which in theory should just make your resource more valuable and easier right. to control. <laughs> right. I mean, this is what I'm saying. Like intuitively, it seems to me like a storage project is going to be good for the grid, almost categorically, like yeah. good for grid reliability, good for grid performance. There's no overloading the grid from uh, from storage. So it seems to me like storage ought to be either allowed to skip the queue or at the very least go to the head of the queue or you know if you attach storage to your project it seems like you ought to get some advantage in the queue yeah and i think another thing that that rtos can do that's really valuable is look at using retiring generation citing mm. things there in storage like natural gas as i mentioned earlier can be placed pretty much anywhere so that's an obvious place. Hopefully you can also connect wind or solar nearby to a right. retiring coal plants connection, right? And as we like to say, repower that grid, valuable grid connection. Um, and so storage can go there. And, and there are fast track processes and fast track, you know, cues, if you will, for considering things like that. And a lot of the RTOs are looking at those processes. And we really see that as a really valuable way to leverage the existing grid. It's, it's, uh, there's a lot of fairness and cost implications. And if you're a developer in the queue, you don't like see anyone jumping the queue. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of ways, you know, questions about what the best way to handle that is. But yeah, that, that relates to storage for sure. Just tell them, like, if you want to jump in the queue, add storage. Like, it just seems to me like, yes to storage as much as possible, as fast as possible. Yeah, certainly for, for short-term duration resource adequacy challenges, there's no question that storage is, is, uh, is an obvious solution. For sure. Okay, so, so by way of wrapping up then, let's just briefly talk about what's next. So FERC has issued this order. As you say, it's going to be, um, you know, these are good things. They're going to be improvements. They're going to speed things up a little bit. Do we think that this FERC order alone is enough to speed things up enough to catch us up where we need to be? And if not, like, what are the other tools in the toolbox here? What else can be done? What should sort of advocates be thinking about next? Well, there's no substitution for transmission. Okay, so <laughs> I, know, I know I keep being a broken record there, but it's true. So leveraging gets as much as possible, leveraging the existing retiring connections as much as possible, and then... The last one's a little fuzzier, but I think the RTOs have some flexibility on how they treat deliverability of resources and think about their resource adequacy. 
And sometimes I worry that that we're overly strict about making sure a project is really deliverable. Mm. And so Mr. Clements noted that there's something called energy-only resources that typically have different, less strict rules for deliverability. So there's probably ways of getting projects on the grid more quickly by looking at like some of the specific rules about how careful we have to be on deliverability. You know, those are going to be some complex conversations and possibly like build on some, you know, long used processes that RTOs have been using. But I think there's some flexibility there. Uh, you know, and we're excited certainly to work with, with everyone to see if we can figure out ways to get more generation on to the existing grid quicker while we plan the transmission. These all, I mean, except for maybe fully grasping and, and throwing ourselves into regional and interregional transmission, which is still not really on the table in any meaningful way. This all seems kind of incremental, like just intuitively to me, it doesn't sound equal to the scale of the problem. So I'm wondering if you feel the same way. And I sort of wonder, given the need for grid reliability, you know, as you say, the legitimate need to sort of study these things and make sure they're not going to screw up the grid, is it even possible to approve things to get on the grid fast enough to hit the targets we want to hit? Like, is there a process that moves fast enough even on the horizon here? Well, I'm an optimist. <laughs> and if you look at how many gigawatts of power are likely, you know, that the RTOs themselves say are going to clear, then it's a large number. So we, we can actually move fairly quickly, but... It's not as large as we want. And how many of those projects are going to get bogged down in really large network connection costs are, are going to be hard, but perhaps there's ways to fund those. So yes, I'm an optimist that we can use our existing grid a lot better than we are today and get a lot more storage, wind, solar on the system. But yeah, it's going to be a challenge. There's no easy answer on expanding the grid to re replace a lot of retiring fossil generation and grow it to substitute for the existing oil and gas industry, right? Like that's a, that's a large ask to do very quickly. <laughs> it's, not, it's not something <laughs> it's ever been, you know, it's never been done. No, never been done. But, but that's why we're here to do it for the first time. All right. Well, thanks so much for decoding all this for us and, and, and picking apart these strands. And it sounds like, um, you know, it sounds like a, as bad as this problem is currently, there are things happening. There is, there is hope. There is hope. The FERC order is a big deal. And there's lots of dedicated stakeholders and advocates working really hard to try and fix these issues. So that's what always gives me hope. Awesome. All right, Chaz Teplin of RMI, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much. Always great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.